Welcome to Role Models for Change, a series of conversations with social entrepreneurs and other innovators working on the front lines of some of the world's most pressing problems. Ai Jinpu is a leading labour activist and the founder of National Domestic Workers Alliance. The Alliance works to bring dignity and fairness to the growing numbers of workers who provide care and clean our homes, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of colour. Ray Suarez sat down with iGen to talk about the future of work in the age of automation and a new kind of support infrastructure she calls universal family care. Ray started the conversation by asking iGen to describe the Alliance's overall goals. The National Domestic Workers Alliance is the leading voice for domestic workers in the United States. We represent the two and a half million women who work inside of our homes caring for some of the most precious aspects of our lives. Our children, our aging parents, our loved ones with disabilities, and yet it's some of the most invisible and undervalued work in our economy. And so our work as a movement is about uplifting the work, the dignity and the quality of the work, and the people who do this work. At a time when the need for this kind of work is only going to grow, do you think Americans are ready to discuss paying some of our lowest paid workers a decent wage? Well, there's been a lot of talk in the United States about the future of work and so much is unknown about the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on the American workforce. But one thing we do know for sure is that these jobs of caring for our children and our parents are jobs that are here to stay. These are jobs that are only going to be increasingly important as the aging population in the United States grows exponentially. With the baby boomers aging and people living longer than ever before, we need more care than ever before. And so the home care workforce, for example, is the fastest growing occupation in the entire U.S. economy. So these jobs are here to stay. It's a huge opportunity to make them good jobs for the future, jobs that you can really take pride in and support your family on, where one generation can do better than the next. These are often described as low-skilled work. But if you think about what goes into it, especially with care of children and the elderly, um, maybe it's just attributes that we don't recognize as skills or have a hard time recognizing his skills. Absolutely. If you think about what is domestic work, the work of caring for children, it's about nurturing the potential in a child. Um, elder care work is about upholding the dignity of our parents, the people who cared for us and raised us. I mean, what could be more important? in reality. And if you've seen the women who do this work at work, you know that it's difficult work. It's work that requires skills and stamina and patience and strength and emotional capacity, intellectual capacity. It's really difficult work and is so often underestimated. It's as underestimated as it is undervalued. It's also being done by an immigrant workforce, isn't it? This workforce is more than 90% women, disproportionately women of color and immigrant women, 
And it's often talked about as work that is unskilled and yet essential. So everyone knows that it's essential work. But if you really look at the workforce, it's impossible to imagine a way that we could care for all the people who need it without a very strong immigrant workforce. We rely so heavily on immigrants, immigrant women in particular, to do this work. Um, they're going to be a huge part of the workforce of the future. Well, you've just described an essential labor pool. Is there a fundamental mismatch with the tone, the volume, the vocabulary of the debate we're having about immigration in the United States? Well, one of the things that has always really perplexed me is the fact that so many of us have immigrant women working in our homes, in our communities. They're already deeply embedded in the fabric of our lives and of our economy. And yet the tone towards immigrants is one as if they're other or they're outsiders or they don't belong. Yet they're an essential part of everything, including what happens in our very homes. So there's an absolute disconnect for me in terms of how we're talking about immigrants and thinking about immigrants in the media these days. Are we, as a people, and you know, we're talking in England, but we're talking about the United States, but really in the Western world there's similar demographic trends underway. Are we even recognizing the tidal wave of aging that's, that's going on and what that's going to mean to our needs for those services? Well, one of the biggest trends shaping our future is this growing older population that is a result of both the aging of the baby boom generation into retirement and the fact that advances in healthcare and technology have allowed us to live longer than we ever imagined possible an average of 20 years longer than when we first put our safety net into place. We've essentially added another generation onto our lifespans, but we're completely not set up to support that extension of life. And the thing that people forget is that aging is actually living. It's longer to learn, to love, to connect, to teach, but we're not set up to support that to support a dignified quality of life for the growing older population, I think it's one of the biggest opportunities of generations to update our culture and our norms and our policies and our systems to support life in the 21st century. And yet it's often referred to as, it's compared to natural disasters, like people often call it the silver tsunami or the age wave, but it's actually a huge, moment of opportunity that can enrich us all. Is there any country that's handling it well? It's happening in a lot of places at once. I do think that many countries in Scandinavia and Europe and even Japan have been thinking about this question for longer. And many of them have, for example, universal long-term care as part of their national health care systems, which we don't have in the United States. But I would say the one piece that no one's really got right is this question of the workforce that is required to support the growing older population. A care workforce that is strong and prepared and um, systems that allow for the jobs that are gonna be caring for the older population to be professional good jobs. And so that piece 
America, the United States, could be a global leader on. And that is another possibility and huge opportunity that I think is ours to seize. You've spoken of and written about the possibility of training and credentialing these workers, which would help them command both higher wages, but also more respect in the economy as people who've mastered a certain body of skills. Yeah. Um, any progress to report in that? It, it has some appeal intellectually. You say, yeah, let's recognize what these people know how to do. I'm wondering if there's a vessel for it, a, a place for it. Has anybody figured out how to systematize it? Well, one of the things that we've really observed is if you think about the role that frontline home care workers and caregivers are playing in the health and well-being of older adults and people with disabilities, it's actually crucial. The day-to-day -day management of chronic illnesses, making sure that people are taking their medication, watching for when medication's not working out, you can actually, if, if the people that are right there observing, bearing witness to everything that's happening in the home on a day-to-day -day basis are really invested in as part of the solution, an essential part of the healthcare team, so much more is possible in terms of enhanced quality of life, better health outcomes, reduction in the cost of healthcare overall in our system, and yet, for the most part, we haven't actually invested in the workforce in that way. And so the systems that have actually proactively tried to train and support this workforce to play that role have seen incredible results. The biggest example I can think of is in Washington state where there's a training home care training fund that trains 40,000 home care workers per year wow. in 12 different languages. It's the second largest educational institution after the University of Washington in the state. And as a result, Washington is one of the most prepared states in the country for the coming elder care boom. So I think that we're already seeing the ways that this can work if we really value the workforce, the frontline care workforce, as part of the solution for the future. Because it, it doesn't take much to figure out how that workforce, knowing more, can both lengthen life and save a lot of money. If somebody doesn't have bed sores, if somebody doesn't have a reaction to uh, a medical, uh, a, a drug interaction, uh, you're actually foregoing a lot of expense and maybe even saving lives. If you think about what it costs to hospitalize somebody for a week, it's incredibly expensive in our system. And if you have the right care, say when you're discharged from having a stroke um, or from surgery, if you actually have the right care at home, you can avoid unnecessary institutionalizations and hospitalizations. You could probably make up for a year's worth of a living wage salary in just avoiding one week of institutionalization. These are the things that having a plan and preparing proactively allow us to do. Investing in this workforce, really seeing caregiving as valuable and as a key part of the care puzzle, right? 
that 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 unlocks so much more possibility as well as resources in our system. Well, the history of the need for this kind of service um, tracks with American women moving into the workplace in large numbers. Right. And often their move into the workplace has been to do low-wage work. Mm -hmm. So on one level, it, while it's lamentable, it makes sense that like a rock falling down a hill, the women who come in to take the place of relatives, of daughters, of wives, um, make even less than they do when they head off into service and retail and, and many of the other jobs that they do in numbers in the workforce. How do we get around the fact that when relatives were doing this work, it was totally unpaid? Well, when we look at what's happening in the American family, on the one hand, on the older generation, where as the baby boomers age and live longer, we need more care than ever before on the elder care side. Millennials are also starting to have children at a rate of four million babies born per year in the United States. So on both ends of the generational spectrum, we need more care than ever before at a time when we actually have less of it because we used to rely upon women to stay home and take care of family members. They were our default care infrastructure. But in the 21st century, when there's such a huge explosion in the need for care, and most women, more than 70% of women are actually in the workforce, we actually have less care available. So we're gonna have to design differently. We're gonna have to create new systems of support, including a strong caregiving workforce. We're also gonna have to support family caregivers who are in the workplace. A lot of people are taking care of their families and also working. And those people are under a tremendous amount of stress and pressure. Have you heard of this term, the sandwich generation, right? Sandwiched between the pressures of elder care and child care while they're working. That generation has so little support available to them. And the numbers to pay for care just aren't adding up. When 70% of the American workforce earns less than $50,000 per year, and the average cost of a private room in a nursing home costs more than $90,000 per year, the average cost of childcare around $20,000 per year, the numbers just aren't adding up. And so what we're seeing for the first time in the United States is an actual decline in women's labor force participation for the first time in decades because women can't afford to work and take care of their families. So we've got to design for this challenge in a totally different way in the 21st century, where we're actually thinking about care as infrastructure, the human infrastructure needed to support an economy in the 21st century. So what do some of the models look like? What would we be doing differently from what we're doing now? Well, our vision is to create what we call universal family care. The idea that someday there should be one social insurance fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us pay for childcare, elder care, and paid family leave. Basically everything we need to take care of our families across the lifespan while we're working. And it's designed to support work, 
right? People want to work. People want to contribute in the economy. But balancing that with actually being present for family members, providing the care that their loved ones need, has become near impossible in this economy. So if we had a support infrastructure like universal family care that would allow us to make care jobs good jobs, living wage jobs with real professional opportunity and allow for the affordability of care so that the millions of working people who have families can go to work knowing that their families are gonna be supported that is the kind of infrastructure investment that will be necessary and will also increase so much, release so much human potential into our economy. A lot of these conversations that we have around home care, around child care, around the creation of benefits, of social insurance, it feels like there's almost a, a shortage of creativity, a shortage of imagination, a shortage of generosity even, mm -hmm. where we just conclude that we can't do these things. Mm -hmm. It sounds great, but we just can't do it. You're right in the heart of these conversations. Do you feel a change of tone that's being forced by the realities of American families' lives? The willingness now to recognize some of these situations and some of these needs because we can't really avoid it anymore. I absolutely think that people all over the United States across race, class, and generation are feeling the pressure of figuring out in the wilderness on their own how to take care of their families in an impossible situation. This for so long has been treated as a personal burden or failure when it's really an urgent social issue in need of a collective solution. And we're fortunately in a moment where women are on fire and driving change at every level of society, voting, running for office, marching, and demanding solutions that actually meet the scope and scale of the challenges before us. So I have a lot of hope that women are gonna be huge drivers of change in this conversation. And I also think that the pragmatists in, in, the, in the leadership of this country will come around too, because ultimately, every time I talk about a solution like universal family care, people talk to me about the cost of such a program. And the thing that we never talk about is the cost of not doing these kinds of programs, of not having a plan, of not investing in our ability to care for our families. I mean, there's the cost of what we're paying out of pocket for these services, but then there's the huge emotional and financial burden of figuring out how to work and juggle these responsibilities alone. And so life I believe is hard enough without the incredible financial and economic stress on working families right now, we can do something about that. And when we do, we will see incredible potential and possibility unleashed in our economy. Along with the sheer numbers, the sort of demographic realities and the rigidities of that, we've got a large number of people getting old. There's an interesting racial and ethnic dynamic as well as a disproportionate share of the non-workforce active population of the United States is going to be white. 
and a disproportionate share of this caring group is going to be brown of some variety or derivation. And the intimacy that we're talking about, yeah. it almost, I sometimes think I'm in a, I'm in a, you know, a split personality country <laughs> where people talk about, uh, you know, the threat of people coming from everywhere and the threat of lowly educated people and the threat of low-wage workers. And you think, but your mother's closest friend is from Jamaica because they spend far more time with your mother than you do mm -hmm. and know her moods and her ups and her downs and which medicine she takes at what time of the day and all that. There's this really strong bond of intimacy between people who absent the, the vagaries of our modern economy, would never have met each other in, in normal circumstances. Yeah. But here they are spending a really critical time in life together, yeah. thrown together by <laughs> circumstance. I, I think we sometimes underestimate just how wonderful and valuable and unusual all of that is. It is so unusual. <laughs> I mean, this, my friend Heather McGee often talks about the United States as the most ambitious experiment in democracy in the world. Because if you think about it, we had Native American communities, First Nations in the United States, and then we had all of these people who came from Europe, and then all of these people who were brought during the <coughs> transatlantic slave trade. And then we had generations of migrants from every country in the world, every religion, every language, every culture. And then they tell us that we are one. It's really a profound and humbling proposition. And yet we are. And that is precisely what makes us great and unique. Um, and it's incredibly challenging. But one thing is for sure, that when one thing is for sure, when we think about the growing older population and the huge need for care, right? The fact that as we live longer, it also means an increase in chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's and dementias and all these, all of the, all that comes with a growing older population. Our care needs are an all-hands-on-deck situation. We're going to need family members and friends and neighbors and a really strong workforce, immigrant, non-immigrant. It's going to require all of us coming together as a country to ensure that the people who cared for us and raised us, made our lives possible, actually can age with dignity. And so I think that that is actually a huge opportunity for us to come together as a country. There isn't a single person in this country that doesn't have an older person in their life that they are worried about and that they're going to be responsible for caring for. Not everybody has children, but everyone has a parent, right? And so this is something that unites us. The need for care can bring us together as as we solve for it, if we think about solving for it in the most inclusive way possible that reflects the full diversity of who we are, it's a huge opportunity to bring the country together and to create solutions that everyone can really see their interests inside of. You're a labor leader, but it's not really a conventional union. 
in, in the way that we think about unions and the way we, th- like, you're not Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, I'm wondering how this hybrid work um, sometimes has you being more like that, more like a card-carrying member of organized labor and sometimes more like a persuader or a sociologist or something like that. Do you have to inevitably wear several different hats as America sort of settles in and gets comfortable around some of the realities that you're proposing? I think of myself as a problem solver um, and an optimist, a disciplined optimist. (laughs) Um, And you know, as somebody who's part of a social movement of domestic workers, of women who go to work every day and their job is to uphold the dignity of our elders. Their job is to nurture the potential of children. They cannot do their work if they don't love and care. And there is something so profound about being immersed in that work and that workforce that um, teaches us so much about what kind of society we need to create and about what matters most and how we design our policies and our politics in a way that reflects our values and what truly matters most. Um, And so sometimes that means fighting and protesting and sometimes it means creating technology platforms to deliver access to benefits for this workforce. Sometimes it means working at the policy level. Sometimes it means teaming up with storytellers to tell the story of the incredible value and dignity of this work. Um, We really believe in um, any and all means to to achieving our goals, which is really about dignity and respect and humanity for all. Because it, it got me thinking when I, when I saw that you, uh, you were going to be one of the people I was speaking to during this conference. I was just at a funeral. A friend's mother died at, uh, at 90. And three of the guests at the funeral were the people who took care of her in the mm-hmm. final years of her life who knew her extremely well, were terribly sad and crushed when she died, though it was inevitable that she was going to die. And while, yes, they were employees, they were also something else. And it, it's, you can't play hardball like somebody who puts cars together who says, well, tomorrow I'm not going to show up to put cars together because you're not treating me fairly. Um, it's... It's like having a real job, but it's also like a hybrid where you're also doing something humane and decent for people at the same time. It, it gets a little mushy sometimes as I try to think it out. <laughs> yes, this work is work. It's undoubtedly a job that people do to support their families and pay the bills. It's a profession. And it's also so much more. If you think about this sector of the economy, it's we call it the work that makes all other work possible because it's about supporting everything that happens in our homes and in our families that enables us to then go out into the world and do what we do every day. Um, but it's intimate. It's the home is 
is the workplace. It's a unique kind of workplace and the relationships and the intimacy of those relationships is, is unique. It's like none other. Um, and so it is work and it is so much more. And I think that's a powerful thing. Yeah, it oh, reminds absolutely. us. It reminds us of the power of human interdependence and relationship. And I can't tell you the number of funerals I've been to where the seats in the front row um, that are reserved are reserved for the home care worker who was there. And usually those people are the ones crying the hardest at the funeral because they've they're grieving the loss of this human who they spent endless hours with and who in order for them to do their job right they had to really deeply connect with their family and their humanity and every aspect of their human essence and so it is profound this work it's it's work and it gets to the core of human interdependence and how we really do rely on others if you're bathing somebody and feeding somebody and talking to them when they're lonely mm -hmm. and hearing a story for the 165th time because <laughs> the person you know, yes. doesn't totally have all their memory anymore, it's different from you know, making meals at a diner and, or making cars at a factory or, or, or a lot of other jobs. technology, in yeah. 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 Uh, and yet the lowest paid work in our society. Is that a paradox? I think it's one of the greatest paradox that the most fundamental work and energy that enables human life is the least valued. Um, it is a great indication of how sometimes our world is upside down and unsustainable in terms of how it's designed. Um, Gloria Steinem in the 1970s wrote this brilliant article called Revaluing Economics. And in the article, she talks about the two natural resources that are at the heart of everything in the economy, that make everything else possible, are the planet's natural resources and the caregiving work that goes into raising families. And those two resources, those life forces, have been invisibilized and undervalued in our economy to a point where now it's completely unsustainable. And so if we're to reimagine how to create an economy for the 21st century in the midst of all of this change to actually be sustainable, we would have to revalue at our core those two resources, care, and the planet's natural resources, care and the climate. I was born in the year that more Americans were born in than any other until sometime into our current century, 1957. Mm -hmm. Huge, the peak of the baby boom. Yeah. So when we all start turning 74 and 75 and 80, God willing, um, it's going to mean a lot more home care workers are necessary than even today. Will you attract the kind of people you need if we don't up the level of respect, if we don't up the level of pay, if we don't up the level of training? One of the biggest challenges right now is that we end up losing some of our very best caregivers to other low-wage professions like retail and fast food because they can earn a better income doing other forms of work. 
But so many people, if you've ever seen caregivers in action, you know that there are people who were born to do this work. And we have to support them to do it. I mean, we have such a huge need. There is no reason why these jobs shouldn't be living wage jobs with benefits that you could take pride in that could actually restore the American dream for people. I mean, in the 1920s and 30s, when we were undergoing a similar kind of revolution in our economy, Manufacturing jobs used to be poverty wage jobs that were dangerous, that lots of immigrant women did. And we turned those jobs into pathways to real economic security, where one generation could do better than the next, the definition and the peak of the access to the American dream. We can do that for these jobs. If we created a pathway for care jobs to become living wage jobs with economic security, we could open up new pathways to the American dream for so many working families. Who are the stakeholders? Who are the people who have to be around the table to negotiate the road from where we are right now to the one you just described? Well, we need a groundswell in the public among voters to demand real care solutions. We too, for too long, we've been treating care as a personal burden, an individual responsibility that we have to figure out on our own when it's really quite impossible. These, This is one of these challenges that requires social policy, a collective solution. It is part of our public infrastructure that's needed for the future. And so we as voters have to demand it of our elected leaders. We need champions in our legislatures, in the state legislatures, in Congress. We need someone in the White House who understands the huge challenge and opportunity here. We need leadership in the private sector to be at the table and say, this is a, a, a challenge that requires real public investment and private sector partnership. Um, we, read, we need leadership from all sectors of society, including our movements, in order to solve for this challenge. Are there, outside of Washington State that you described, community colleges that offer training in working with children and the elderly? Is there some sort of course in home care work becoming more available in other places? If, if we agree with you, and it makes perfect sense, whether monitoring medications or looking for signs of, of um, worsening illness or any number of other things, you're right, absolutely. It would be great if they know more. How do they get to know more? There are very robust training programs in operation in New York, in California, in Washington, in Oregon, and they're already proving that when you invest in this workforce, so much is possible in terms of improving quality of life and health outcomes for the aging population. So we have the models. Some community colleges are implementing them. The National Domestic Workers Alliance has training programs. These are, the models exist. We just need the investment to make those models widely accessible and improve the standards of training across the board. Right now, there are no training standards whatsoever in this industry, so it's a little bit all over the map. Um, but we know that the good models exist and that we can scale them. And I'll say that I actually have a tremendous amount of faith in the baby boom generation to help lead the way on this. 
There are two things actually that give me hope. One is that the baby boom generation is the generation that's aging right now, turning 70 at a rate of a person every eight seconds, turning 70 in the United States. This is the generation that gave us social justice and rock and roll. And this is a culture driving generation. If any generation can transform the way that we embrace and prepare for aging, it's this generation. The other thing that gives me hope is millennials who have had more time to connect with their grandparents than any generation in history. And technology has enabled a lot of young people talk about how older people have ruined Facebook, but it's actually a place where we've been able to connect and share stories and share so much across generations. And millennials are incredibly concerned and engaged in the care of their grandparents and their older loved ones. And I think if we come together in this intergenerational way, we can do anything. And the, the reality is, is that the, the need to prepare for the growing aging population is something that affects all of us across generations. If there's one thing I've learned from talking to families around the country, it's that every single person is implicated in the care challenge. Care, the need for care affects families as a whole unit. Right? All of the services and benefits and the lack of a care infrastructure affects children, family caregivers, grandchildren, neighbors, friends. It affects us all. And so with so many of us, right, more than 100 million of us having a direct stake in a real solution here, I know we can get this done. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I hear crazy conversations. Oh no, robots are gonna take care of this. Remote medicine will take care of it. So you'll have a screen in your home. And I say, wait a minute, the same people who don't wanna pay $8.50 an hour to a home care worker are gonna get a robot? <laughs> I mean, really? Are we talking about the same country? Right. Uh, it's human beings that are gonna do this work at least for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about how what will be automated and how artificial intelligence will shape our future. But one thing is for sure, um, my colleague Pollock Shaw always talks about how they've been trying to design a robot to fold a towel in a lab in Los Angeles for 11 years and have still been unsuccessful. So I think at least for the foreseeable future, we're gonna have real people in the role of caring for people we love. And you can see a way that this will provide security for those home givers' own families. Their children don't have to grow up in poverty, for instance. Right now, we have a situation where the people who we're counting on to take care of our loved ones can't take care of their own doing this work. It is a impossible and cruel scenario that our caregiving workforce is, is living with right now. We have the opportunity to change all of that. If we make these living wage jobs with benefits, we will have a strong, sustainable care workforce to meet the challenge of caring for the growing workforce in this country. I, I know it's possible. 
And we're already seeing in places like Washington State, where they've raised the wages of home care workers, where they have a robust training program, and they're about to pass legislation to create a long-term care trust act, a social insurance fund to help people afford elder care, you're gonna see Washington State emerge as a gold standard for what's possible in this country. We know it is, we just have to build it. Hi, Jen Poo, a great pleasure to see you. Great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You as well.